So uh, many of you know Rolf and Angela Cruz and their family. They've been in our church a couple of times. Um, they just came back in June uh, after uh, becoming acquainted with and kind of be, uh, investigating ministry in a refugee camp in Arua, Uganda. Uh, very specifically, the refugee camp is called the Rhino Refugee Camp, and it is home to about 150,000 South Sudanese people that are fleeing the violence in their home country. Uh, my friend, Leighton Friesen, who's also our conference pastor, uh, we'd like to have him come and speak here sometime, he got the opportunity to visit that refugee camp while Rolf and Ange were there back in April. And this is what Leighton said, and I'd like to encourage you to take special note. He said, a refugee camp is a place where tribes and denominations get thrown together. It was moving to hear how churches that never worshipped together back home, Protestant, Catholic, Pentecostal, and from enemy tribes, here in the refugee camp, they suddenly found no reason to be separate like that. Church leaders see this episode of life in exile as an opportune time to plant new churches and train leaders. And then he said, that camp became a powerful metaphor in my life for the church in its exilic ramble through the days of this world. And I'm going to say, isn't it crazy how a little persecution for our faith suddenly causes us to forget about fighting and disagreeing with each other? Suddenly we like each other. And we thrive on worshiping God together. In fact, our very survival as believers is dependent on us being able to spend time together with and worshiping God together with the very people that, in the good times, when we had nothing better to do, we found crazy ways to argue with each other and have heated discussions about theology. Store that over here for a few moments. As... Uh, as I remind you about the fact that, and we're going to come back there in a little bit, uh, remind you that uh, this morning we are going to take one more run at bringing to a conclusion this uh, series of messages that we've been doing during the course of the summer on the Beatitude statements of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. And so we're going to try and bring that to a conclusion. We were going to do that a couple weeks ago already, but then uh, that morning that we did all the kits and stuff here, that became such an exciting morning and a full morning that we left this message until a more opportune time, and today is the day. It's been a good run. It's been a good run for Jesse and Mike and myself to work through these statements that Jesus made as he kind of begin, began his uh, ministry, his preaching ministry to people, and it's been especially helpful for us to work together at trying to build a bit of a trajectory or a ladder. I like the, uh, the stepladder analogy or picture diagram that uh, Jesse first introduced to us that helps us to understand a little bit better what kingdom of heaven thinking really is all about. Here's one more look at the stepladder diagram that we introduced to you a little while ago, and I hope that it helps us all to understand a little bit better the trajectory of these beatitude statements of Jesus. So the last specific beatitude statement of Jesus that we want to look at this morning is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, and it connects with the little story that I shared a few minutes ago. 
Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then actually verse 11 is very similar. Um, the only one of these statements that kind of seems to be repeated. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I have to be honest, as I was preparing to speak about that, this, this morning, I was wondering if I was really qualified to speak about this. Uh, I'm not totally sure that I have experienced enough of this to be able to intelligently, heartfeltly, is that a word? In a heartfelt way, speak about this. Maybe, maybe a little bit at some point, but I'm really not very convinced. And so let me be honest here, as I speak, uh, there are likely some of you sitting out here in front of me right now that would be more qualified because of experience to speak about this than I am. And so rather than going deep theologically and trying to pound this home to you, the way I'm going to approach it is I'm going to make some observations that are intended to get you thinking and hopefully to get you talking and discussing with each other and maybe around your lunch table and maybe at work during the course of the week, etc. So here's some observations that strike me as I take the time to read these verses and try and allow them to, to break through the, um, the generally fantastic life that I, that I experience or that I live in. Number one. This statement of Jesus is not a statement asking you to become a super-Christian. It is not a way for you to uh, come up with a plan by which you are going to gain brownie points, although this is how it has been treated sometimes in the past. There are stories told of radical people, crazy things that people have done to create hardships for themselves, withholding conveniences for themselves, even inflicting pain on themselves for the purpose of gaining a greater reward in heaven. Now, I don't think that that is kingdom of heaven thinking. Let me explain what I mean. I tried to encourage you, we have tried to encourage you from the beginning that this whole kingdom of heaven thing is more about how we think than about how we act. It begins with how we think, not with how we act. It is challenging us to allow the kingdom of heaven to live in you and as you allow the kingdom of heaven to live in you, Kingdom of heaven actions will begin to come out of you. And so the challenge is to learn to or embrace the idea of invite the kingdom of heaven to infiltrate you, saturate you, be at the core of who you are, and then simply watch to see what the kingdom of heaven does through you as it exemplifies itself, as it comes out of you. Now, 
back to what I just finished saying. So I don't think that this idea of doing radical so-called Christian things in order to in order to invoke the wrath of people who will then persecute me and therefore or thereby increase my reward in heaven and if nobody is actually persecuting me then I better persecute myself so that I will also have more heavenly rewards I would suggest that that is actually not a kingdom of heaven way of thinking at all kingdom of heaven doesn't thinking doesn't say I will do this so that I will gain more in the end. Kingdom of heaven thinking simply is kingdom of heaven thinking and kingdom of heaven actions for the simple fact of it being kingdom of heaven. It's not so that at the core of, of what it is. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You do not need to experience persecution in order to live a holy, godly, kingdom of heaven kind of life. My first observation. However, you can expect... That from time to time, and in some environments, much more than just from time to time, when you live out the kingdom of heaven that is inside of you, there will from time to time be opposition. You can expect that there will be people that will not understand why you are acting so strangely. Why you are making decisions that appear to be upside down in their way of thinking and living. And these people may, in fact, speak badly of you or create some opposition for you. And so as I was thinking about this, I began to ask the following question. And this is my second observation in the form of a question. So when it comes to this persecution thing, is it because I am doing all these things and living like this and thinking like this, therefore I will be persecuted? Or is it, because I'm living like this and have learned to think like this, when I am persecuted, I will still be okay and be able to experience blessing because I have learned to think differently. See, persecution makes no sense in this world's way of thinking. You pursue whatever makes you happy now. And so why would you live the kind of life that puts you at risk of some kind of persecution? That's crazy. Do whatever everyone else is thinking or do whatever everyone else around you is doing. Gain as much power as you can. Make yourself as happy as possible, as pretty as possible, as smart as possible. Avoid any kind of trouble. Lie, cheat, steal, deceive. Whatever you need to do to pursue your own happiness. But if you have learned to think kingdom of heaven ways, then all of these things become non-factors. And having some trouble and some hardship is not a determining factor in how you choose to live. No worries because, see, I'm thinking about something else. I'm focused on something much bigger. And so I would like to suggest that because... 
you have learned to think like this. If and when persecution happens, you're okay. You're okay because of the way kingdom of heaven inside of you thinks. Number three. Let's not be too quick to call something persecution in our world. Uh, a couple of things come to mind. One is, um, I'm going to call it super spiritual people. You will meet them from time to time. Um, when someone, another godly, humble person, in some way opposes them or legitimately challenges them, on how they think or their attitude toward other people, these super spiritual people, they almost gleefully call it persecution. I mean, after all, they have directly heard from God, and if there are people that challenge them or disagree with them, then they are simply being persecuted. And after all, that's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. When you follow God, then persecution will happen. And it is almost as though the so-called persecution is elevating them only into another higher level of spiritual life than the people, godly, humble people around them. And I'm going to say, be careful. Be careful. I've talked to pastor friends like that who've been challenged by people in their congregation about certain things, and they turn around and they simply call it persecution. I should expect that I'm going to be persecuted. Be careful. Be careful not to call something persecution too quickly. There's actually another word for that. It's called arrogance. Arrogance and self-righteousness. Secondly, we are often tempted to feel like we are persecuted when laws in our country change that may restrict some of our freedoms or that take away some of our privileges. Uh, I think many of us were tempted to think, if you were familiar with what was going on in the news and our government, that this summer grant program that required you to check off a box that indicated you were in favor of abortion, uh, that that was actually persecution on Christians. Uh, I, I wonder if we better think about that again. See, the definition of the word persecution here actually has an element to it that is... That is um, being pursued. So, this is not talking about the taking away of a privilege. If someday churches in our country will no longer be able to have charitable status, and this is quite likely, when that status is taken away, that will not be persecution the way Matthew chapter 5 here in Jesus' Beatitude speaks about persecution. The taking away of a privilege is not persecution. However, when Christians are specifically targeted and hardship deliberately inflicted, that is what this word here translated persecuted is talking about. Someone coming after you or seeking you out to deliberately cause you trouble or hardship. Because you think like this, they desire to cause you hardship or hurt, or pain. That is persecution. And these verses challenge us to think, because you think kingdom of heaven, you can still experience amazing blessings even in the middle of that. See, I remember when this summer jobs thing first came out, um, 
I was livid. Uh, you can't do this to us. And then there was another situation where the YFC in Morris was suddenly shut down within half an hour's notice a few months ago because of some crazy little rules by the fire commissioner. And again, I was, I was livid. This isn't right. It's not fair. We have to stand up for our rights. Now here's my question. If I have learned to think kingdom of heaven thoughts, then I would not need to become irate because there is something else controlling my way of thinking. A different worldview, a different way of thinking. It's not about physical or earthly power and control anymore. And those were the things that were initiating or instigating my response. It's about spiritual power and spiritual vitality. Get on your knees, bring it to God, let's see what happens. I have to confess, that's not my first nature. That's not how my nature wants to think. When kingdom of heaven takes control, we do not panic when persecution comes because we've learned to think differently. Number four. A key ingredient in kingdom of heaven living is self-sacrifice. I don't like that. I don't like it at all. I'm guessing most of you are in the same camp together with me. I don't like the word self-sacrifice. I don't like the fact that as I read, give scripture a chance to teach me an objective, general truth I don't like the fact that I have to come to the conclusion as I read scripture that self-sacrifice is a significant part of kingdom of heaven thinking. It's not human nature. It's kingdom of heaven thinking. A rich young man came to Jesus and asked, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? Uh, what do I need to do in order to be in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus tells him, go, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Matthew chapter 19. says the guy went away sad because he had great wealth. Or how about the verses in the bulletin? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever wants to save his life, that's human nature, that's how we think humanly, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's kingdom of heaven way of thinking, for me, will find it. Or how about this one in Luke? If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I don't know what to say or how to interpret this to make it easier for me and you. You want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? Well, kingdom of heaven says put self on the line. Another place that says become a living sacrifice. And so, is it fair to say it like this? If you are not willing to sacrifice self, 
then kingdom of heaven is not for you. But Darren, that makes no sense. That's crazy. Exactly. That's why we've been calling it an upside-down kingdom. To think like that makes no sense. In our world, we do not sacrifice self. We try and make things as good as possible for self. We exalt self. We look after self above all else. We pleasure self. Not so in the kingdom of heaven. Their self is sacrificed. How does this relate to being persecuted? Let me, let me twist something for you. Well, not twist. Let me, let me manufacture something here for you again for your deliberation. Well, in a sense, this self-sacrifice thing is probably one of the hardest things in the world for us to do. I'm going to say, it's, for me, it's one of the hardest things in the world for us to do. Except when it is forced on you. And that's one reason why it is a blessing to be persecuted. Because this incredibly difficult thing is imposed on you and it's taken care of. Well, kind of. I'm, I'm making it sound a little too simple. But you make a choice. I will follow God no matter what. And then what is imposed on you from the outside becomes your self-sacrifice. But for us, when life is so good in so many ways and we have so many opportunities and so many chances to improve life for ourselves and pamper ourselves and do what we want to do and spend money and time on what we want to spend it on and what makes me feel good, holidays and toys and luxuries and convenience, how in the world do I live out self-sacrifice in this kind of an environment? I hope this creates a conundrum for you. I hope this is a constant source of conflict in your heart and spirit and mind. I hope that you are constantly thinking about, about challenging yourself in our self-pleasing culture to find ways to sacrifice self and put self on the line. In a way, it would be so much easier if I would be living under persecution. And I would not need to struggle daily with trying to figure out how to live self-sacrifice in my luxury-filled world. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I challenge you to have the guts to contemplate this. Make it personal. What does it mean in my world and in this time, in this place, to live out self-sacrifice? To think kingdom of heaven. Now let me try and explain, in the few minutes we have left, another aspect of this blessing. So the word is, for theirs is the kingdom, or the reward is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, as you go through all of these steps up the stepladder, and you have learned to think kingdom of heaven thoughts like this, and then add to that the pressures and imperfections of life here on earth, uh, to that persecution that's being inflicted on you by the outside, your focus begins to shift. You are coming to the place of fully changing loyalty from the kingdom of this earth to the kingdom of heaven. You will see this happening to people who are persecuted for their faith. I mentioned that earlier. You will also see it happening to people who, and maybe in a little bit of a lesser degree, but to people who, and I'm going to verbalize it like this, who are being persecuted by this earth 
who are going through sickness or pain or suffering, the, the things of this world that, that, that have their own way of persecuting you, you will see it happening to them also where they are slowly shifting away from thinking and looking and contemplating the things of this world and self-progress and the things of this world and focus is slow, slowly shifting more and more to what the kingdom of heaven has to offer. A trip back to the uh, introductory story that I gave you. So you have Catholics and Pentecostals and Mennonites and mainline Protestants from enemy tribes or enemy communities. And they all end up running for their lives. And they all end up tired and wet and hungry and cold in one common refugee camp. What do they do? They come together. Kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in one loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That happens. That begins to happen in a very profound way when people are persecuted for their faith. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Loyalty also begins to shift fully toward heaven, like I said, when you experience persecution of this earth through sickness and pain and loss and struggle and hardship where you begin to think less of this, this woefully insufficient thing that we call life here and you begin to think more and more of a place and a time where complete, real, full life exists. I love this, this little thing that I heard. I was attending the funeral of a friend and the minister shared the story of a man who was struggling with, with the dreaded disease of cancer and he was coming closer and closer to losing the battle and one day he met a friend whom he hadn't seen for quite a while and this friend said to him, oh, so you are still in the land of the living. And his ailing friend looked at him and said, no, sir, I am still in the land of the dying. But in a few very short days, I will be in the land of the living. And so loyalty changes. Focus changes. The camera becomes focused. As we walk through persecution, whether it's inflicted on us from the outside by other people or whether it's inflicted on us by this earth and what this earth wants to do to us, the camera slowly comes into focus as we shift from what this earth has all got to offer to what the kingdom of heaven actually has to offer. And I remember, I remember my mom and dad, and I've shared this with you before, when they lost uh, two, two young children, um, people would ask my dad a little bit about it. And I remember one phrase that he often used, um, heaven is a lot closer than it used to be. Focus shifting, kingdom of heaven thinking. But if life here is so good, it's so hard to change loyalties to the kingdom of heaven. Why would I want to become fully immersed in the kingdom of heaven if life in the kingdom of this earth is almost perfect? But if life here is tough, then the focus shifts dramatically. And according to what Jesus says, the more your focus has shifted, the more your loyalty has shifted, the more you get the kingdom of heaven and long for the kingdom of heaven and desire the kingdom of heaven to be full reality, 
the more blessed we are. Like I said, the intent was not to fully exhaust this topic this morning, but I've tried to give you a few additional thoughts or observations to help you think through this last beatitude statement of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen.